Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ranking of the Stars, a podcast in which I, Jack D'Lo Boblik, and my lovely, luscious, leafy green vegetable wife, <laughs> I am Emmeline D'Lo Boblik, watch in chronological order every single movie that has won the Oscar for Best Picture. And today's movie is... Gone with the Wind! The final boss of the 1930s. Yep. The, the much, much anticipated Gone with the Wind. The last thing standing between us and the 1940s. A yes. new decade. Poster. Well, let's remind everybody first that this is going to be a two-parter. Because yes. this is an almost four-hour movie. Damn near four hours. And so this would be a damn near five, six-hour podcast if we did the whole thing in one go. So we're not yes. doing that. Yeah. I'm breaking it in two. All right. We will go until the intermission. <laughs> yes. Because that's how fancy this movie is. It has an official intermission in it. Exactly. All right. Let's look at the poster. And for the first time ever, I'm showing you three different posters here. The first one is the actual first, the first time that uh, the movie was released. That's the poster. So that's these the are going release. in chronological order. That first one's the... The first one is the uh, the actual 1939 poster. It looks then the second one is going to is just art that ha that's been done uh, for the movie, and then the last one I'll show you is from the 1967 release. Yeah, re-release. They, they re-released it multiple times. Yeah. That first one looks like a Yu-Gi-Oh card. I hadn't thought of that. Yep. He's gonna slap that down. <laughs> I summon uh, problematic worldviews. <laughs> Racism and all. Yep. It got a uh, sort of an orange and a brown background with... Orange? I see like a little bit of orange here in the center, maybe. Kind of like the dust in the south that's very present in the movie. I would call the very background dookie brown and then the foreground uh, lighter dookie brown. <laughs> lighter dookie brown. <laughs> And then we have a painting or a drawing of the of the two protagonists kissing. Yep. S at the top. Smooching, which I don't think we've even gotten to that. Because we've seen a smooch between them in the movie, but they were not dressed like that. He was. Are in you a, sure? Yes. Yeah, he, he was in the white shirt. He was in a yes. white shirt only. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Well, that's uh, some foreshadowing, some spoiler alert on that poster for us. And then the second one, they got some can-can girls at the bottom, which we also haven't seen yet. No, I don't know that, and I don't know that we'll ever see them. And that those can-can girls had nothing to do with the scene that's portrayed here at the top, because that's a scene from the first part of the movie, but there were no can-can yeah, girls. Because she's in her black yes. morning dress. Yeah, yeah, that's when they're at the, the big... The ball. Yeah, the big uh, fundraising for the, the hospital. Yeah. And then the last one here is a little bit more vibrant than what we've been used to Yeah. so far. That's a good romance novel cover. Flames in the background. Yes. A, a ripped bodice, an open shirt. Uh-huh. The, the close faces. You know. Yeah, she's in a red dress and he's about to like... Uh, like swoon her i guess she, he's she's yes. already swooned he's yes. holding her in his arms as the world burns around them yep kiss me you fool kiss me <laughs> which one's your favorite the one with the fire yeah they get I thought so too they get progressively better like yeah the first one is that's just a damn pokemon card mm. <laughs> i don't know what they were doing i 
thought so too. I thought that the the nineteen sixty seven re release poster was the the best one out of out of all the ones that I've seen. Yeah, these other two are, are fibbing and fibbers go to heck. So yeah. <laughs> that's why there's fire on the third one. <laughs> they're in heck. <laughs> all right, you're ready for uh, characters and actors. Oh boy, it's gonna be a doozy. Yeah, there's a lot of people in this movie. All right. Characters and actors. Since we're doing a two-parter for this episode, today I'll just introduce only the characters that we meet in the first part of the movie before the intermission, and then next time I'll introduce the new characters who appear in the second part so that we don't get too confused. Sounds good. So the first part of the characters is um, people that we may, uh, that we meet at Tara Plantation, which is Scarlett O'Hara's family. So we have Thomas Mitchell, who plays Gerald O'Hara, the father. Barbara O'Neill, who plays Ellen O'Hara, his wife. Vivian Lee, who plays Scarlett O'Hara, their eldest daughter. Main female lead. Yes. They have two other daughters, but they just play, they're not there very much, so they're, I didn't mention them. I didn't even look up the, the names of the they're actors. They're barely ever on screen. Yeah. They, they don't ha- even have any lines, I don't think. They, like, tease Scarlet a few times mm. and, like, stick out their tongues at each other, but they're very tertiary characters. Yes. We have, uh, I'm hoping that I'm pronouncing her name correctly, Hattie McDaniels who plays Mammy, the house servant. Oscar Polk, who plays Pork, another servant. Pork, yeah. And Butterfly McQueen, who plays Prissy, who's in one other one of the servants. Yeah, all the people of color only get uh, single names and are usually named after objects. Yeah, Mammy, Pork, and Prissy. What's Prissy? Prissy means, like, haughty. Uh, Then at the plantation of Twelve Oaks, we meet the Wilkes family the wilkes 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 Wilkes. okay leslie howard plays ashley wilkes alicia rett plays india wilkes his sister olivia the haviland plays melanie hamilton their cousin who then becomes ashley's wife because we are in the south we're in the south she's my blood she knows me Rand Brooks plays Charles Hamilton, uh, Melanie's brother. <laughs> the saddest sad sap to ever appear on yes. screen. And uh, we meet uh, Clark Gable, who plays Red Butler. In living color. Should we talk now about how he's miscast for this role, or should we save it? I mean, we can. Why not? Yeah, uh, he's miscast for this role. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think he's miscast? Uh, he... He's too old. He doesn't fit the type of character that's being depicted here. He He's not dressed the same way as everyone else. Like, yeah. we're, we're talking off mic, and I told you that he looks like he strolled in from a James Bond movie. Yeah, we both thought that he looked too Hollywood, too too polished. Yes, he, he just doesn't fit in. Yeah. With, with the tone of the rest of the movie and he's also he's supposed his character is supposed to be 32 33 at the beginning of the movie and he was he himself was already 38 but he looked 45 yes he looks like he could be scarlet's father yes which is a problem because they're romantic it was a little gross in this movie and he has just a different aura around him than everybody else does in this entire movie he just he feels out of place yeah i can see that 
Uh, all of the actors, I'm sure that a lot of the actors in the movie had already sort of an established career. I didn't know um, uh, most of them apart from Clark Gable, but yeah, he looks too polished, too used to it, just too fancy for a, for his character, but also for the movie in itself. Yeah, he was clearly cast not because he fit the role, but just for name recognition a production of this prestigious level, of course you're going to get the most prestigious male actor. Yeah. So. Yeah. And uh, we were just talking about the age difference between the characters. So Clark Gable's character, Red Butler, is supposed to be 32, 33 in this movie. And then Vivian Lee's character, Scarlett O'Hara, is supposed to be 16 at the beginning. Twice her age. Yeah. Hey, lady, I'm double you. You want a smooch? <laughs> All right, let's continue. A couple more characters that we meet in Atlanta. Laura Hope Cruz plays Aunt Pity Pat Hamilton. Aunt Pity Pat. Pity Pat. And then we have Harry Davenport. That's our third movie in a row with Harry Davenport as a as a character. He plays Dr. Mead here. And yes, that was his third movie. He was the in chief a row. of staff in Emil Zola. Yes. And then the he judge. He was the judge, the, the night court judge in You Can't Take It With You. And now he's a doctor. Yeah. Very different characters every time. Our first first triple crown. Yeah. He was really good, I think, in all of the characters. He was very believable in, in all the characters that we've seen him in so far. Harry Davenport is awarded our first turkey. <laughs> first turkey. <laughs> yeah. All right, information about the movie. It was directed by Victor Fleming, although we'll see in the fun facts that he wasn't the only director who worked on the movie. Uh, he just he was just the one who did the most days. Yeah. <laughs> the movie is based on a novel of the same title by Margaret Mitchell. It was produced by Zelsnick International Pictures and Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Uh, the premiere date was December 15th, 1939, and it premiered in Atlanta, which is sort of fitting for a movie which represents uh, the Old South. But we will also see in the fun facts that it had the fact that they chose Atlanta as their location for the premiere had its issues. And I read somewhere that that was the director's first time being in the South was the premiere because they didn't shoot it in the South. They shot it in California. They shot it in California. Yeah. Which, I mean, technically is in the South, but not the South that they're representing in the movie. Yep. So, uh, the running time is 221 minutes, if you only count the scenes. 222, too much. <laughs> 238 minutes, if you also include the overture, intermission, and tract, and the exit music. It never ends. And that's also reduced from what it was originally because uh, the first showings, uh, the, the sort of the screen tests with audiences was over four hours. I think it was close to four uh, hours and 25 minutes. And, too, and then they trimmed it down. Too many people in the audience were born and died. <laughs> yes. The budget at the time was $3,850,000. night. And over the years, with all of the different re-releases that they did, it made over $400 million. Yes, by ticket sales, this is the most popular movie that has ever been released. Well, that yes, and also because it's been re-released yes. periodically. So. It, yeah, it's unfair. Unfair statistic, but... 
Right. Remember how I said that uh, I think it was It Happened One Night was a treasure trove of fun facts? This one is is winning the crown. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right here. A movie this big that's this long. I'm sure you could make multiple movies about the making of this movie. Yes. And I'm sorry, but not all of those fun facts are actually fun. <laughs> so let's dive in. The producers acquired the rights in 1936, um, but uh, filming didn't start until January of 1939 for various reasons. And some of those reasons are, one, the script had to be revised many, many times because it was way too long. Two, uh, Zelznik was determined to get Clark Gable to play Red Butler, but Gable was under contract at NGM and had to be released from his contract or had to be on loan somewhere else uh, so that he could play the the part. We need to riot for the the full uncut version, the (laughs) seven-hour version of Gone with the Wind. No. Uh, And then casting for the role of Scarlett O'Hara took forever. They saw over 1400 actresses for her role gotta get it just right which apparently that effort of seeing so many actresses caused them about a hundred thousand dollars i think what yeah what what what, i guess they had paying paying people for their time yeah paying people salaries to be there and judge the actresses sure And then there were problems uh, with filming when the whole production started. The original director, George Cukor, was fired soon after filming started. He was replaced by Fleming, who was also directing The Wizard of Oz at uh, at the time. Then Fleming became sick and exhausted and had to be replaced by Sam Wood for a few weeks. Um, post-production ended in November 1939, and the movie was released in December. So post-production was uh, finished not even a month before the movie came out. Quick turnaround. It was just a yeah. succession of directors all just handing the baton off to each other. Yeah. I've gone as far as I can. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Zelznik had to hire dialect coaches because he really wanted to make sure that the actors could do a really good southern accent. And I don't know how much money they spent on that, but on the coaches. But in my opinion, some of the actors, including uh, Vivian Lee, didn't do such a good job. Like it's very obvious from from the very first scenes that she's in that she's a British person. Her accent to me just continuously sounds British in the movie. You can hear it a little bit in people, but yeah, it's certainly not just casually noticeable. Yeah, that they're supposed to be speaking that way. Yeah. And you had some trouble understanding them anyway, which gave rise to the alternate title of this movie being Gone with the Wind, Every Tenth Word Edition. <laughs> Every Tenth Word Edition, yes. Because you had some trouble parsing what the hell people were saying Yeah. through the, the southern drawl. Yes. It is said that about 300,000 people came to Atlanta for the premiere at the Lowe's Grand Theater. Leslie Howard didn't attend the premiere since he went back to England because of World War II. And the director himself wasn't there either because he had had an argument with Selznick. So he went to the South, but he didn't go to the premiere. And then a sad fact here is that Hattie McDaniel, who plays Mammy, 
was prohibited from attending the premiere in Atlanta because of Jim Crow laws that were in effect in Georgia, which meant that African-American cast members could not be in the same space as their white counterparts. The movie was re-released a bunch of times, 1942, 1947, uh, 1954, 1967, 1971, 1971, 1989. Racist, although the issue of slavery is kind of in the background because we then we see servants, but nobody apart from wanting to keep their old way and uh, keeping the slaves in the south, it's not very much addressed otherwise, yeah. as uh, as far as we've seen in the movie. The whole backdrop is the Civil War, right? So, right, it, it's a larger issue that they never it hangs over the plot, but they never really ad- yeah. address it. I don't think we've ever even heard the the word slavery or nope slaves nope, which you know kind of take us uh, takes us back to um <laughs> to the life of Emil Zola and their sort of refusal to say Jew or you hear a lot about <clears throat> Yankee aggression, yep. which is what the war was called in the South. Mm-hmm. It was called the War of Northern Aggression. <laughs> yeah, and then it's their fault. They started it. <laughs> And then another thing is that audience uh, audiences in general agree that the movie lacks real substance. It was nominated for 13 Academy Awards, including Best Actor for Clark Gable, Best Supporting Actress. There are two nominations here, Olivia de, ha- de Havilland and Hattie McDaniel. Best Original Score, Best Sound Recording, Best Visual Effects. And it won Outstanding Production, Best Director, Best Actress for Vivian Lee, Best Supporting Actress for Hattie McDaniel, Best Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography in Color, Best Film Editing. It also received two honorary awards, one special award for the work that they did in color to enhance dramatic mood, and one for a technical achievement in, quote, pioneering in the use of coordinated equipment. God knows what that means. Yeah, the hell? <laughs> coordinated equipment. I'm assuming it's for, you know, some of those big scenes in Atlanta uh, at the beginning when there's the war is arriving to Atlanta and there's just frantic people in the streets and, and all that, but... I there was I didn't find any more information about that. We are very familiar with the Academy's big crowd fetish. At <laughs> yes. This point, so. Yes. And how many people were there? Were were they running? Were they panicked? <laughs> was there a big sound? Ah. And then there was a sequel in 1994 in the form of a mini series entitled Scarlet. <laughs> Gone with the Wind Part Two. <laughs> Gone Part Two. The Empire Strikes Back. Because apparently people were very dissatisfied with the end and felt like, well, ha- we haven't seen the oh end boy, yet. Oh boy, I can't wait. But uh, people were dissatisfied with the end and thought that it wasn't a very good closure for the movie. You know, or what, so. you know what my problem with Gone with the Wind is? It's not long enough. <laughs> so yeah, miniseries in 1994. And that's it for me. Is it time? It's time to start. All right. Here we go. 
Time to slay this dragon. We open with a warning. Gone with the Wind is a product of its time and depicts racial and ethnic prejudices that have unfortunately been commonplace in American society. Past tense. We fixed all that. Yeah. Racism is over. Remember what you said when we started watching the movie? You were like, where was this warning for Cimarron? Yeah, where the hell was this warning for Cimarron? <laughs> we, we've seen uh, stuff as equally racist or more racist than this with no warning whatsoever. But this is the movie that still exists in the collective conscious from this time period. Yes. So it's the only one out of the ones we've watched so far that modern audiences would have a chance of actually watching right? aside from perverts like us. Or that they would know just by name because people refer to it so many times and so often. Yes. It is a, a cultural touchstone to this day. These racist depictions were wrong then and are wrong today. To create a more just, equitable, and inclusive future, we must first acknowledge and understand history. This picture is presented as it was originally created. And then we open with a two-and-a-half-minute overture. It's just the silhouette of a tree against an orange sky and the words overture sitting in the and some music. loud music. This movie certainly has the most aggressive soundtrack yes. out of everything. Yeah. It is it drowns out what people are saying it is it punches you in the face a lot yeah the picture of the that tree in that background that that was it was pretty i just didn't understand the need for that to be two and a half minutes yeah i was telling you he's like oh yeah cool gone with one i got nothing else to do yeah let's just sit here and watch <laughs> this tree for two no it's fine let's watch some leaves fall yeah great <laughs> just feel my cells aging cool yeah, it this movie, it it's arrogant and and full of itself. Mm. So it it's haughty in its own way. It's it it knows it's this giant prestige production. So it's gonna have an overture where you just sit and listen to the music, and it's it's gonna have an intermission and all these you know it's high society, goddamn it, and it's going to it's gonna let you know about it. So <laughs> sit here and watch this fucking tree and like it. Shut up. I'll watch the tree. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's a, this movie does great work with silhouettes, though. Yeah, there's definitely, like, I understand why it won some of the prizes, uh, some of the, the awards for, like, art direction and stuff like that, because it's so... When we were watching it, there were a lot of moments that looked more like paintings Yes. For as new as color was as a technology, they did an amazing job yes. with all the colors. Yeah. It might be that they had that two and a half minutes just to get people used to the idea of color. They didn't want to overwhelm them. I didn't think of that. Can't just throw people in the deep end like Wizard of Oz. They'd have heart attacks and die. The two and a half minute overture ends. A shot of slaves working the fields then and giant white letters scroll across the screen. Gone with the wind. Opening credits over scenes of nature and plantations. We see horses, we see fields, we see clouds. More text. There was a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South. Here in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair, of master and of slave. Look for it only in books, for it is no more than a dream remembered, a civilization gone with the wind. 
and here we get the first taste of how romanticized the old South is in the mm-hmm. depiction of this movie. They are head over heels in love <laughs> with the Deep South. Yes. On the stoop of a large southern estate, Scarlet sits in between two young gentlemen, twin brothers, redheads, who explain that their expulsion from college isn't a big deal because war with the Yankees is on the horizon and they would have dropped out to enlist anyway. Scarlet isn't interested and thinks this war talk is spoiling all the fun. She maintains this attitude throughout the entire movie. War is so boring, can't we talk about anything else? (laughs) If they say war one more time, she'll go inside and slam the door. They continue to talk about war, and she gets up and heads for the door. But they both chase after her pleading, and she lets them off with a warning Mm. this time. We're setting up so many recurring things in this opening scene. The fact that men just fall head over heels to placate Scarlet in any way possible. The Her complete ambivalence towards the war. Yes. Her, like, toying with with man's feelings as well, because she, you know, she comes back and she uh, she seems, she acts pretty and nice at some point, and then she, able, she takes both of their arms and makes them think that she's going to go to the ball with them and, and give them her dances and all that stuff, and it's just... Yeah, it's another recurring thing. Yes, Miss O'Hara has all the men around her wrapped around her thumb, and she's very aware that they're wrapped around her thumb. She's very, very aware. Even though, like, she, not to be uh, mean or anything, but there were... she's a bitch! (laughs) That, but also there were prettier girls in the movie than Scarlett O'Hara. There were prettier, prettier actresses than Vivian Lee. They decide to talk about the upcoming barbecue at the Twelve Oaks Plantation instead, and the twins ask if Scarlet will waltz with them there. She would if all her waltzes hadn't already been reserved. This is how popular she is. She's got a goddamn waiting list. (laughs) Do you know how uh, dances used to happen? Like balls and stuff like that? Uh, Women used to have like a... A little piece of paper that they could put around their wrist and literally their men would just put their names in for to get the chance of a dance so that they would reserve dances with the women what if we tell you a secret they ask and the secret is this miss milani hamilton from atlanta ashley wilkes's cousin that goody goody grumbles scarlet mm-hmm. is visiting at 12 oaks and ashley is going to marry her the Wilkeses always marry their cousins. Yeah, that, uh, that, I was like, oh, yikes. The camera zooms in on Scarlet's face as the crushing news is delivered, and she grants the twins their waltzes as they celebrate. Scarlet gets up and walks away, whispering that it can't be true. She loves Ashley. As she walks away, we get our first taste of Mammy hanging out at the second floor window, yelling at Scarlet to put on her shawl and that she has no manners, etc. This is 90% of what Mammy does in this movie. Just, just re- yell at Scarlet. Yelling at Scarlet. <laughs> God damn it, put your fucking clothes door. You're not cold up. Ah! <laughs> and I'm going to say this from the very beginning. Mammy is my favorite character so far. <laughs> She's the only one who calls Scarlet on her bullshit. Yes. She's the only one who sees her for the little snake that she is and, uh, yeah, doesn't coddle her like everyone else does. Yeah. Which I also appreciate. 
We then fade into a large bell being rung. It's so big that it's being rung by, it has a wheel on the end of it, and there's two kids standing mm-hmm. in the wheel and just seesawing back and forth to make the bell ring. That would look fun. At first, I had only seen one of the kids, and then when it turned, I saw the, the second one. I was like, wow. Which signals quitting time for the slaves in the field. Then we see a man on a white horse leap over a fence and splash through a stream, and Scarlet running to greet him. It's her father, who is returning from Twelve Oaks, and Scarlet wants to know if Melanie is really there. She is, and Scarlet says she hates her. That makes her father suspicious, and he wants to know why Scarlet cares about Ashley and Melanie. Has he been trifling with you? Mm-hmm. He says. Her father tells her their marriage announcement will be made tomorrow at the barbecue. Scarlet runs away, yelling that she doesn't believe it. But her father soon catches up to her and asks if she's been making a spectacle of herself, running after a man who's not in love with her. And what does it matter who she marries anyway, so long as he's a southerner and thinks like her? Yeah. He goes on to tell her that he intends to leave their plantation, Tara, to her, but Scarlet isn't interested. Do you mean to tell me, asks her father, that land doesn't matter to you? Land is the only thing worth working for, worth dying for. Because land is the only thing that lasts. You talk like an Irishman, says Scarlet. Her father replies that he's proud to be Irish, and that for everyone with even a drop of Irish blood, the land they live on is like their mother. And as someone who has 33% Irish ancestry, mm-hmm. my response to this is negative, ghostwriter. <laughs> well, you know, apparently one of the reasons why Vivian Lee got got the part is because she herself uh, had some Irish blood and some French blood, mm. which in the novel uh, Scarlett O'Hara also has French and Irish blood. I see, I see. Her dad, it, all white hair, looks, must be in his 60s. He definitely looks much older than he than he's probably supposed to be. I mean, everybody looks certainly older than her mother. Yes, yes. He tells her that the land they live on is like their mother, and the camera pulls back to silhouette them against the huge evening sky, our first giant orange sky. Yeah, and that's one of those images that I thought looked more like a painting than actual film. Yes, the sky in this movie is almost its own character. It is enormous a lot yeah. of the time. It's always enormous and orange with Mm -hmm. very painted clouds on it. And once they once we get to Atlanta and there is like clay, I guess, like orange clay on the ground. It's just too much orange at some point. Overwhelming. Yeah. Choking on it. That night at the Terra Manor, Scarlet's mother Ellen returns from, as Mammy puts it, waiting on poor white trash. Mammy talks about white trash a lot. She does. <laughs> Stop being white trash. <laughs> Which I didn't expect this to be an expression already back then. Like I know, I know the expression white trash nowadays. I didn't expect it to be already commonly used. <laughs> oh yeah, we we set up the social uh, stratifications from day one. <laughs> As she walks up to the door, she's approached by the overseer of the fields, Mister Wilkerson who wants to know what work she wants done tomorrow. And Ellen informs him that she's just come from the bedside of Emmy Slattery, who she goes to tend to multiple times in the movie that we never ever see in person. Mm -hmm. And that Mr. Wilkerson's child has been born and mercifully has died. Her mom is awful. (laughs) Yeah, she just haughtily looks at the guy and, your child has been born and mercifully died. (laughs) 
And he didn't even know because he, what, huh? what are you talking about? Which I took to to mean that uh, he had probably raped the person, or that he had probably raped, that or woman. just associated with someone below his station in life. Yeah, was my assumption, and it's better for your child to be dead than to be poor, and that to be uh, shamed. Yeah, maybe? born to white trash. Gross. Gross. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. yeah, the way she and she acts is... with him is definitely very haughty. Like you said, she she definitely makes him feel his uh, his place in in society. And this is our introduction to this character. Yeah. Good night, Mister Wilkerson. She says. She then goes inside and tells her husband that Mister Wilkerson is to be fired tomorrow. So it's not enough that his child has just died. He needs to lose his job too. Over associating with the lower class well it also probably doesn't show good morals and doesn't and not good treatment of people scarlet and her sisters then come charging down the stairs arguing about the dresses they're going to wear tomorrow and their mother puts an end to their bickering by telling them it's time to pray they all sit together in the designated prayer room it's candles and soft lighting and they mm. all Sitting I, on a couch or on chairs. Yeah, I was raised in the church in the Deep South, and we did not do this family prayer together thing. In the house? Yeah, so this was an odd tradition to see. Well, granted, this is also uh, supposed to be the 1860s, and you were born <laughs> over 100 years after that. <laughs> yeah. Some old-style praying. We we all have to <laughs> we all have to share our energy to push the prayer up to heaven. <laughs> In the prayer room, while everyone else is uh, praying, Scarlet realizes that the problem is that Ashley doesn't know that she loves him. So all she needs to do is tell him tomorrow. Fade into Scarlet holding onto a bedpost while Mammy yanks on her corset strings and tells her to suck it in. Good lord, that corset was on tight. Like she was uh, she was very thin, but. I would not want to have a corset any time uh, in my life because that was that looked way too tight and so uncomfortable. Well, Mammy was almost like planting her foot on her back, and... <laughs> which I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. You see, some of the like some of the the sermons do that also uh, to uh, Kate Winslet in Titanic. Yeah, you don't need to breathe; you need to look pretty. Prissy enters with a tray of food, and Scarlet tells her she can take it all back. She won't eat a bite. Yes, you are, says Mammy, and also informs Scarlet that she needs to pick a different dress because she can't show her bosom before 3 p.m. That's what she actually <laughs> says. There's a time and a place, and apparently 3 p.m. is not cutting it. The rigid, arbitrary, nonsensical societal rules <laughs> that they operate under. No cleavage before 3 p.m. Sure, okay. Scarlet says she intends to eat at the barbecue because Ashley said he likes women with a healthy appetite. Mm. Mammy replies that A, what men say and what they think are two different things. B, real ladies eat like birds. And C, she doesn't remember Ashley saying he would marry Scarlet. Get her, Mammy. Get her. I love her. Yep. Scarlet glares at Mamley and then throws her toy umbrella on the ground like the child that she is and begins to eat because she's got this little, they're tiny little accessory umbrellas. Yes. 
they they're too small to even cover your head so they're just they're an affectation and they're all they're made of not silk not uh they're made of oh what's the word uh embroidery so that they would you know it's not full fabric it's just embroidery so that it would also let some of the sun pass through the umbrella hers is black and feathery and then she just throws it onto the ground it goes under a desk because she's having a tantrum. No, it goes under her like uh, wardrobe, yep. her uh, her dresser. Transition to a sign that says Twelve Oaks, John Wilkes, owner. Anyone disturbing the peace on this plantation will be prosecuted. And we see numerous horse-drawn carriages making their way towards the manor. This thing has a a. It's so far back from the main road that it has another road just to get to the house. And it's huge. It's probably. Yeah, like I'll, four or five times as big as the Terra Plantation House. Yes, this is this is the Southern Genteel Society, so yeah. they all have these giant, multi-level white manners yeah. and huge dresses that look like Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. And the all, house has columns, like the those yes. pillars that come down. Horse-drawn carriages and and men in uh, military uniform and. Yeah you know proper upper scale balls huge uh stairs also inside the house leading to yes. uh, to the upstairs rooms lots of grand sweeping staircases and, and marble and tile floors and the o'haras arrive and are greeted by mr wilkes and his daughter who whispers to her father that she can't stand scarlet because of how she throws herself at her brother ashley remember your duties as host her father whispers back Scarlet then arrives and enters the manor and immediately sees Ashley descending the grand staircase and runs up to him to say she has something to tell him. Could they go somewhere quiet? And I was shocked at Ashley's appearance because he looks like he's in his late 40s. Yes. He is not, like, he's not ugly, but... No, but he's definitely, you see a sharp contrast between them where she's, so Vivian Lee at at that time, she was 26 and she's supposed to play a 16 year old. She looked fairly young. Yeah. But he looked considerably older, like much, much older. Not as old that he could be, not so old that he could be her father, but definitely like a a much older brother yeah he he's visibly aging like he's got wrinkles around his temple and whatnot he's the kind of man you'd expect a girl her age to go ew gross too old (laughs) so not in south apparently not when you're of marrying age yeah at least i'm not marrying my cousin (laughs) when that's the bar it's pretty easy to clear it (laughs) yeah very surprised at his appearance uh, sure, he says, but come say hello to my cousin Melanie first. <laughs> Scarlet and Melanie then exchange pleasantries, and Melanie hopes that her and Scarlet can become good friends. Oh, uh, Scarlet is not so nice in that exchange because she says uh, she essentially is trying to tell Melanie that uh, Ashley has never kept his word, that he's he's never told her any, that he always tells uh, lies to women. And yes, he leads them on. And, yeah, yeah, she's... Her tone is being pleasant, but her words are not. Scarlet is a professional homewrecker and sets about her work immediately. (laughs) Trying to undermine things. Uh, 
Melanie hopes that her and Scarlet can become good friends, and then I have written next in the notes, Snowball's chance in hell of that, you dank bitch, <laughs> Scarlet says to herself. I love that expression in English, the no no chance of, no, no snowball, Snowball's chance in hell. Chance in hell, yeah. That's a good one. Then an awkward young man comes over to greet Scarlet, who calls him Charles Hamilton, you handsome old thing. And he's, he's a sad puppy. Yes. I think that's the best way to describe him. Very plaintive and, oh, Miss Scarlet, you're so pretty and I'm just a big old dummy adult. He looks younger than her, though. When she called him uh, this uh, handsome whole thing, it was like, he looks like he could be about 10 years younger than you. Yeah, he looks like a boy who is grown too fast so he's awkward in his body yeah he's not but his face is puppy like yes very baby faced and and awkward and not used to how big he is yet off to the side two girls see this and comment that scarlet never even noticed charles before and only does now because he has a girlfriend professional homewrecker Scarlet then goes around to every guy with a lady on their arm and makes promises about eating or dancing with them to the chagrin of their dates. She just mm. bounces from one to the next. Yeah, everyone she misses is like, oh, yeah, I'll give you a dance. Oh, how are you? And they're just I love relentless. New, I love your new facial hair. And they all immediately drop their attention from their dates and focus fully on her. She is the belle of the ball. As Scarlet slowly makes her way up the stairs and through all the men on the stairs, she pauses a moment and asks a fellow young lady who that nasty man at the bottom of the stairs who's looking at them is. Slow zoom onto the smiling face in living color of the king of Hollywood himself. Clark Gable. Clark Gable. I like what they did with this reveal because you can tell it's a... A momentous occasion because mm-hmm. this might be the first time that Clark Gable ever appears in color and he was the king of Hollywood at this point. Yes. So it's it's this dramatic reveal of holy shit Clark Gable. And it, oh boy is he handsome. He's just standing there with his arm on the bottom of the stair just smiling right into the camera. He's framed in the middle of the shot. It's just yeah. you can almost hear the fanfare. The trumpets play. Here he is. Yeah. The king. I was swooning. <laughs> Jesus, he was just super handsome. You see him is almost he's got a an elbow, I think if I remember well, on yep. the on the stairs and then he's slowly turning to and he's starting he's at this age where he's starting to have some like white hair on the side of his on the side of his head. He's entering into his silver fox stage. And he's got the little like mustache. Oh my god, the signature Clark Gable mustache. I, yeah, I would probably faint. I would have probably <laughs> fainted at, at that time. Weak at the knees. Yeah, this yes. was a, a good reveal. Yeah. And then, that's Rhett Butler from Charleston, the young lady replies. He has the most terrible reputation. Do you remember what his terrible reputation is? I think we're supposed to understand that he was courting some lady and that he didn't offer to marry her and that maybe she got in trouble, meaning she probably got pregnant. It is three things. One, he dropped out of the military academy. Ah. Two, his family will not receive him Mm -hmm. when he comes back. He's estranged from his family. And three, what you said, he went on an unchaperoned date (laughs) with a lady. 
And then Scarlet whispers to something to the young lady that we don't hear. And her reply to the whisper is, no, but she's ruined all the same. Yeah. So her reputation is in tatters for going on an unsupervised date. She she violated one of the insane, arbitrary, rigid rules and is ruined for the rest of her life. Yeah. You see that for modern audiences also. You see that that's part of the scandal, I think, at, at the beginning of the um, Netflix series Bridgerton, where people make a big deal about young ladies having to have a, a chaperone where, when, whenever they want to have a, a conversation yeah, they gotta with, ha- with a suitor. They got to have the vagina goalie. Aww. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Not in my carriage, hey. <laughs> And then if you don't have... Flag on the play. <laughs> if you don't have one of those chaperones, then the man was supposed to you know, offer a marriage. That one almost got in. Had to die for that one. Eesh. Yeah. And uh, as he's looking at them, Scarlet says she feels like he's undressing her with his eyes. I mean, yes. When you're being looked at Clark Gable the way he looks at her, yes, I, I can feel that. He's a... Uh, He's a scoundrel from the second he comes on screen. (laughs) Then we transition to a scene where Ashley and Melanie walk up to a pair of curtained glass doors and paws. They're silhouetted in the dim light. Happy? asks Ashley. So happy, replies Melanie. And they open the doors and step out onto the landing, looking out over the lawn where all the guests are mingling. It's a good, they open the doors and then you're just awash in color and all the the guests on the lawn and sunlight where they had been in the darkness before. I almost expected them to make a, you know, make a big speech and uh, right then and there announce their engagement. Yeah, they're they're coming out onto a, a little landing. It seems like the kind of balcony you'd make a speech from, though they're not that yeah. high up off the ground. They're on ground level. It seems like a stage to stand on to direct attention to, but they right. don't. All the guests are mingling, and Melanie says it all feels like a dream made just for her. Ashley loves her and Twelve Oaks, but wonders how long it can all last. Melanie knows he's anxious because of the looming war, but tells him not to worry. No war can come into their world. Foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Cut to Scarlet, sitting down and surrounded by suitors who begin to argue about which one of them will bring her dessert. This is how structured their fucking society is. They have to petition to be allowed to be the official bringer of the dessert, yeah. Jesus Christ. There there are people standing behind her. There are people like, kind of like uh, on their knees next to her. She's yeah. sitting on a chair. There she are just, people that are sitting on the grass. Yeah, she's just sitting in the middle of this cloud of uh, young, awkward men just stumbling all over each other to to uh appease her every whim she's like where the fuck is the chaperone there she is the queen uh presiding over her court (laughs) the privilege is given to charles hamilton who looks a lot like gene wilder in this particular shot Mm. uh, who thanks her and scampers away falling all over himself Scarlet then sees Ashley and Melanie walking together and decides she's lost her appetite when Charles returns. Mm. He comes back within 10 seconds and she's already, I don't want the cake anymore. Fade to Scarlet being undressed by Mammy and complaining that she doesn't want to take a nap. And Mammy replying that well brought up young ladies take naps at parties. One of Scarlet's sisters teases her about losing Ashley and they stick their tongues out at each other. And Mammy scolds them for acting like white trash. (laughs) One of Mammy's favorite words. 
We then get a close-up of a sundial and the quote, Do not squander time. That is the stuff life is made of. Uh, which is a hell of a thing for a movie with a two and a half minute opening overture to say. Don't I know it, Gone with the Wind. And then we see conjoined rooms where at least a dozen young southern bells nap in their underclothes while being fanned by slave children. This is wild. This practice of all the young ladies go and nap together in a room while they're fanned with peacock fans by the, the young black children. And not just all together in the same room but also there were some like beds big enough to have like three or four of the the young ladies in the the bed all together they're stuffed together in multiple beds they're draped across couches together there might be a couple on the floor because there's i believe so there's so many of them yes all in their underclothes and it's it's the middle of the afternoon this is just it's a very childish even though they're in their upper teens at this point there's there yeah but they're going to the ball tonight they're gonna have to be dancing all night when i was 16 to 18 i could stay up for like 72 hours straight (laughs) they're ladies you are not a lady this infantilization of the of the the girls is it's it's really gross they're getting their beauty sleep Mm, i don't like it (laughs) i didn't either i'm just trying to be devil's advocate scarlet sneaks out of the room and overhears the men talking about the war and how easy it will be to win it ashley is asked his opinion and says that he hopes the yankees will let them have the union in peace but they've insulted us you can't mean you don't want war the others protest. Most of the miseries in the world were caused by war, says Ashley, and once they end, no one ever knew what they were about. This causes a slight uproar, and Mr. Butler is asked his opinion. His opinion is that there isn't a single cannon factory in the whole South, and it takes more than words to win a war. That, of course, increases the uproar, and Charles Hamilton tries to provoke Butler into fighting, but instead Butler apologizes and takes his leave. What Ashley says reminded me in a weird way of All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah. When they're discussing, you know, how wars are made and and who benefits from those. And a cat, I think it's cat who says, like, uh, wars... We never really know what wars are about, and there are, we're always fighting other people's wars. Yeah, nobody fighting the wars actually want to fight the wars. Yeah. It's all the, the emperors having their fun. Ashley and Butler here are the only two voices of dissent against the war. Everyone else is all gung-ho for it, and we'll beat those Yankees so easy. And it's a, it's a room mm-hmm. full of like 50, 60 people. They are crammed yeah. in shoulder to shoulder all patting each other on the back about how cool and tough they are and how easy it's going to be charles comments after butler leaves that uh, it means butler's a coward because he wouldn't fight but ashley says it really means butler didn't want to take advantage of him since he's one of the best shots in the country ashley then leaves the men to speak with butler alone but is intercepted by scarlet who pulls him into a side room so she can confess her love she tells him she loves him and knows that he cares about her too. He agrees that he does care, and Scarlet closes her eyes and tilts her head back in anticipation of a kiss. But Ashley turns away and asks that they forget this ever happened. Scarlet is enraged and calls him a coward. 
and he calmly replies that she's still a child that doesn't understand what real marriage really is, and that he and Melanie understand each other better because they share the same blood. Yuck! Scarlet rages some more, ultimately slapping Ashley and saying she hates him, and he walks out with no response. Slapping people is one of Scarlet's only skills. <laughs> she uses it as a means of punctuation yes. to end her sentences sometimes. And it always it's accompanied by a very sharp sound effect, mm-hmm. like smack. But then none of the people she slaps, their heads don't even move a centimeter. So it's a comically large sound effect with a comically small physical reaction. Ashley leaves and Scarlet then picks up a small vase and hurls it at a wall. It shatters... And Rhett Butler slowly rises from behind a couch in the room and delivers the best line in the entire movie, in the first part at least, and asks if the war has started. <laughs> yeah, that was great. He just rises up and he's got his uh, cheeky grin on and goes, oh, has the war started? He is not... Rhett Butler has problems. Uh, they, I think everybody does in this movie. Yes, but I appreciate the fact that like Mammy, he does not... Um, he doesn't shy away from He them. does not buy into Scarlet's bullshit. Everyone else buys into the facade she puts up, but Mammy and Rhett Butler both just, like, see through the act and let her know that they see through the act, yeah. which I appreciate. Scarlet hurls some insults at him as well and tells him he's no gentleman, and he says she's no lady either, but that's a compliment, and he hopes to see more of her someday when she's finally over Ashley. Ashley isn't half good enough for a girl like her. How dare you, she says. You aren't fit to wipe Ashley's boots. And she storms out. She runs to the entrance and then hides under the massive staircase when she hears voices coming down and talking about her. It's Melanie and several other girls who gossip about Scarlet chasing all the men at the barbecue and making a fool of herself. Melanie defends Scarlet, though, saying that it's not her fault that she's so pretty. Men just flock to her on their own. Shouts of excitement then come from outside, and everyone runs to see what the commotion is about, save Scarlet, who slowly walks up the stairs crying. Charles comes flying up after her to deliver the news. Lincoln has put the call out for troops. The war is officially on. Don't men ever think about anything important, sighs Scarlet. War. Ugh. When will they talk about the important things? My petty drama. My dresses and... Don't they know I'm trying to live a soap opera here? The nerve. Charles then says that everyone is going to enlist right now, and Scarlet rushes to the front window to see all the men mounting horses, including Ashley. Charles stands next to her and confesses his love. He's clumsy and stupid and not worthy of her, but if she could think of marrying him, he'd do anything in the world for her. Scarlet watches Ashley give Melanie another kiss and accepts the proposal. Mm. As it, what? This is this is peak stupidity. <laughs> Entering into a marriage out of spite. Out of spite, and I think she says uh, later that it was to make Ashley jealous. Yes playing 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 the stupidest of games and this is our main character is yep. she supposed to be likable at this I, point i don't think so because i don't like her yeah i, I don't think I, apart from mammy i don't like anybody in this movie so i don't 
I don't know if the movie is aware of how unlikable she is, though. And might also be, honestly, it might be a very cultural thing also in the South. It might have been just a very regular attitude for a woman, for a young lady in the South at that time. So I think it's, we're supposed to imagine or at least think that this is a normal attitude and not that she's uh, exaggerating yes it feels like it has this hand wavy oh well she's a child yeah kind of attitude towards her behavior but that's no excuse for this kind of shittiness no we then move immediately to scarlet and charles's wedding and at this point, I said, oh, she's really doing this. <laughs> she's I, really going, I going thought with she, it. I thought she was just going to enter, enter into a stupid engagement. No, she just full speed head on into a stupid marriage. Yeah. And no one's stopping her. I really also thought that she said yes because... So, Charles is Melanie's brother, which means that she would be now family with uh, Ashley and that she would have an excuse to see him more often and maybe, uh, you know, go after him. And granted, he's going to war, but still, it gives her an excuse to to be close to him. Yes. Uh, Scarlet is being her best little sociopath self here and playing the, <laughs> playing the long game so a few decades down the road, uh, her and Ashley can have an affair together. Joke's on her. Yep. Right, we're at the wedding. The ceremony has just ended and the young couple is surrounded by well-wishers. Melanie tells Scarlet that it was just as beautiful as her wedding that happened yesterday and now they're truly sisters. Ashley simply kisses her on the cheek without saying anything, and Scarlet begins to cry. And Charles, misinterpreting the source of her anguish, tells her not to worry. The war will be over in a few weeks, and he'll be back before she knows it. <laughs> Scarlet's weeping intensifies. <laughs> Cut to a letter stating that although Captain Hamilton was not given a hero's death on the field of glory, he was nonetheless a hero, dying of pneumonia following an attack of measles. <laughs> This poor man, this poor guy is the most sad sack person who's ever come on film. He gets married to a woman that does not love him at all just so she can have an affair later down the road with his brother-in-law. And then he goes off to war and dies of pneumonia. Goes off to war and is not even granted a hero's death. He dies in the wimpiest way possible of fucking pneumonia after measles. This poor... I feel so bad for him. What a life. What a tragedy. Fade into Scarlet weeping, not because she had any affection for Charles, but because she doesn't want to be in mourning and have to wear black. Throws herself onto the bed is almost like kicking her feet in tantrum. What a bitch! She's trying on hats when we first come into the scene, yes. and then Mammy comes in and scolds her because she's supposed to be mourning, and it's uh, I don't want to wear black. Oh God! The only way that this was palatable was because it was very similar to the way that I could stomach the abuse that happened in. A mutiny on the bounty mm. because you know the war is coming and there's right. just this asteroid on its way to impact these shitty upper crust monsters 
you can you can handle uh, Scarlet's tantrums because you can turn with your popcorn and watch the the asteroid getting closer <laughs> and closer. And also because Mammy is here and she's here to put her in a place, yep. like always. Her mother comes in to comfort her and suggests she travel somewhere to take her mind off things. Perhaps she could go to Atlanta and stay with Melanie and her aunt Pity Pat. Melanie, Scarlet whispers with a cold, calculating look in her eye. Yes. She will go stay with Melanie. Her mother leaves to make the arrangement, and Mammy, who has been given who has been giving Scarlet the stink eye through this whole exchange, says that Scarlet is headed for trouble if she goes to Atlanta, because Ashley will eventually return, and she'll be waiting for him there, and I quote, like a spider. <laughs> Mammy knows exactly what kind of snake in the grass yeah, she Scarlet knows. is playing. I am on to your bullshit, says Mammy. Exactly. I know exactly what you're doing, you little snake. Then we transition to the Monster Bazaar for the benefit of Atlanta's own military hospital. This is the thing that was on the poster. The, yes, the second on the second poster. poster. It's like in a large, it's just a huge open high ceiling room that I guess. It looks we, like a, a, a large barn, but like big, way bigger than a barn. And not nearly as filthy as a barn would be. Yeah. They, there's no hay or anything. It's just yeah. the largest of the room. But there is uh, every, people all in their fancy dresses and military uniforms dancing. And there's a stage with a band and there's ribbons and they have a, a picture of the Confederate president up and there's booths <laughs> where they're selling things to, to raise funds. On the edges of the crowd, Aunt Pitypat approaches Melanie and complains that everyone is whispering about Scarlet, a widow in public. The scandal. And Scarlet is living with her, so it's as if they're whispering about her. Yeah, because she's responsible for her, for her attitude and her behavior. Yep, it reflects poorly. Melanie says it's socially acceptable for Scarlet to be there because she's just selling things to raise money for the army, not to dance. The camera then pans a few feet over to show Scarlet manning a booth and then pans down to ground level to show her feet dancing along with the music. Mm. Like the back of her big dress is bobbing. Yeah. And her feet are tapping along. The festivities are then paused for a grand announcement. General Lee has swept the Yankee army from Virginia. Huge applause. And not only that, but they also have a surprise guest. The blockade runner and genuine war hero, Captain Rhett Butler. Butler stands and bows. More huge applause. Butler then spots Scarlet in her booth, and Scarlet looks mortified. He makes his way over and greets Melanie, who asks if he's met Scarlet before. Briefly, he says, in the library at Twelve Oaks. She broke something, I believe. <laughs> Scarlet is incensed and, and tries to, <sighs> to run away, yeah. but her dress gets caught on something. Which also becomes a recurring thing. Uh, a man with a basket full of gold then approaches and asks for donations of jewelry for the army. Butler donates his gold-plated cigar case, and Melanie and Scarlet both part with their wedding bands. Melanie then takes her leave, and Scarlet implores Butler to just leave her alone. If he had any raising, he'd understand that she never wanted to see him again. He replies that she has no reason for hating him, and she agrees that perhaps it's unpatriotic to hate one of the great heroes of the war. Butler then says he's no hero, that he's only doing it for profit, and the only cause he believes in is himself. Scoundrel! They're interrupted by yet another announcement, then. For the benefit of the hospital, the men must bid for whatever lady they wish to dance with. 
Butler instantly moves to the front of the crowd and puts in his bid of $150 mm-hmm. in gold for Scarlet. The crowd is scandalized, and the announcer says that Miss Scarlet is in mourning and will not consider it. Oh, yes, I will, shouts Scarlet and comes forward <laughs> out of her booth, causing Aunt Pitypat to faint. <sighs> As the dance begins, Scarlet tells Butler her reputation is now ruined, and Butler replies that with a little courage, you don't need a reputation. <laughs> she then compliments him on his dancing, and he says he wants more than just flirting from her. He wants to someday hear the words she said to Ashley. Yeah. I love you. She assures him that he'll never hear that from her in his entire life. I don't understand. I still, even having watched the the entire first part of the movie, I don't understand what he sees in her. Like a lot of the times uh, after that, a couple times uh, after that when they meet, he keeps telling her that they're the same and that he understands her and that, uh, but I don't. I don't see what he sees in her. He sees a conquest that's playing hard to get. And the harder yeah. to get she plays, the more of a challenge it is for him. I, think. I guess, but he seems to imply that they uh, that they have similar qualities, maybe some resilience or something. I just, I don't know. They're both selfish. Is the way that they're similar. That makes sense. They're both very selfish and only concerned about their own, what they want and their pleasure and to hell with, you know, the war and the country and everyone else's suffering. It's their personal drama that is paramount in their lives to both of them. That makes sense. But then how, I don't know how that so quickly translates into love for him because he... I don't think it's actually love. I, this is a conquest that he's labeling love because he right. knows that that's what she wants to hear mm. is what I felt like. It's there is a tension between them. Yeah. Because she, she's attracted him but won't admit it. And he knows that. So he's just being a scoundrel and, and pushing her buttons intentionally. Yeah. So there, there is that tension. But it feels like a very Han Solo Princess Leia kind of dynamic where she just doesn't want to admit that she likes him yeah and then the second she does they can have a hookup and then that's really as far as the relationship should go because <laughs> there's no way in hell this kind of thing lasts long term well, we'll see with the kind of people they both are another letter in the next scene from butler this time returning both melanie and scarlet's rings to them and promising to pay a visit to them upon his return from paris We move straight into that visit with Scarlet and Butler alone in a side room, unchaperoned. Well, she's a widow now, so who cares? (laughs) She's closed for business because she's a widow. Her her vagoo is cursed. No man would dare. (laughs) And I I guess you only need a chaperone if you're going outside the house. Who knows? Who knows the Byzantine rules of these things? Well, the chaperone doesn't have anything else, uh, anything to protect anymore. So. Uh, Scarlet is unpacking a fancy green hat that Butler brought from her uh, from Paris because it's time for her to be done with her fake mourning, he says. Mm. He, yeah, he knew. Put on some colors, damn it. He, he also said that when they met in the barn, he uh, kind of nodded to the fact that her marriage was fake and he knew that because she's just trying to get closer to Ashley. She tries it on and asks how she looks. 
awful, says Butler, because she's put it on backwards. She said it, she says it was kind of him to get her the gift, and he says it wasn't. He's just tempting her because he never gives anything without getting some payment in return. Mm, I felt that that was gross. Yep. That was not. Women are vending machines. Insert gifts. Receive sex. Yeah. It. And see, that's another thing that didn't fit where for me with. For the character, maybe, but just Clark Gable in uh, playing that character, it just it didn't feel it didn't feel right that it, he was the one saying he it. He is besmirching his image. Yeah. By he is dirtying himself with this role. Yeah. It is beneath him, this beautiful man. If you think I'll marry you for a hat, starts Scarlet. Don't flatter yourself. I'm not the marrying type. Butler <laughs> interrupts. I won't pay for it with a kiss either, says Scarlet. And then she meets Yoma, or just a, a few seconds later, just he's he's grabbing her arms, and then she does the same thing, like you know, putting her head backwards, uh, uh, back, and then closing her eyes and waiting for a smooch. Yeah, that is my next note. Closing, I won't pay for it with a kiss. Closes her eyes and tilts her head back expectantly. She, yeah, for all her, I hate you, I hate you, go away, I hate you. She plays along very strongly when, yeah. when he's laying it on like this. She's teasing and leading him on. She, yeah, they do this dance around each other. I mean, would you resist a smooch from Clark Gable? Who can say? <laughs> I definitely wouldn't. Butler takes her by the shoulders and tells her to open her eyes. He won't kiss her, even though she needs kissing badly and by someone who knows how. <laughs> But the moment isn't right. Scarlet says he's a black-hearted scoundrel, and she doesn't know why she allows him to see her. Uh, because I'm the only man over 16 and under 60 who's around to show you a good time, he says. He tells her not to worry, though. The war will be over soon because a decisive battle is about to happen in a small town called Gettysburg. The scene ends and text appears. Hushed and grim, Atlanta turned painful eyes towards the faraway little town of Gettysburg, and a page of history awaited for three days while two nations came to death grips on the farmlands of Pennsylvania. A huge crowd waits in the town center for latest casualty lists. The end of that last scene, she inquires uh, if Ashley mm -hmm. is going to be in that battle, yeah. and then uh, Butler gets angry because, she, oh, you're still thinking about that so-and-so, and then he storms out angrily. Yeah. And then... Still hung up on Ashley. Yep. Huge crowd waits in the town center for the latest casualty list. Very similar to a cavalcade when they were going to look at the, the cavalcade list that were yeah. posted on the boards. But these are just being handed out like as individual lists to people. So yes. they're waiting for them to be distributed. A man exits a building holding the list and the crowd rushes forward. There, this is a huge, like multiple hundreds of people all crammed mm -hmm. together waiting for these things backed up to the horizon every inch covered by people we get a close-up of one page of the list as the camera moves down it we see the same sentence repeated over and over killed in action killed in action killed in action many in the crowd begin to wail in anguish while others cling to each other in relief scarlet is sitting in a, ca a carriage with melanie and they turn out to be in that lucky second group ashley's name is not on the list 
Melanie moves off to comfort some of her friends who weren't so lucky. And the, it's Dr. Mead and his wife. Yeah, they lost a son. Yeah. And Butler approaches Scarlet's carriage on horseback. Uh, Dr. Mead was also the man making the announcements at the uh, charity fundraiser. Yes. He, he, was, didn't, yeah. Yeah, he was the one who said, uh, Scarlet can't dance. She's in mourning. Yep. Pick someone else. The hospital doctor. Uh, Butler asks if she lost anyone and then says to look at all these tragic people. The South sinking to its knees. It'll never rise again. We then see a letter stating that Ashley has been granted leave for Christmas and fade into a busy train station where many happy reunions are taking place. Ashley and Melanie hug and kiss while Scarlet stares daggers at both of them. <laughs> Back home, they have a dinner of chicken and fine wine, and afterwards, Ashley and Melanie retire upstairs with Ashley wearing a new high-quality uniform Melanie has gifted him. Which we're, I think we're supposed to understand that she got it from a family that she helped, uh, and I guess it's their deceased son's old uniform yeah here dead people clothes isn't it cool and he says thank you thank you for the haunted rags (laughs) and he promises uh, to return them uh, with no bullet holes in them yes is the promise he makes to her scarlet appears at the bottom of the stairs this is a a well-lighted scene it's the staircase is all in darkness and there's just this little pool of light at the bottom that scarlet just enters into yeah like she's standing in in a spotlight and the couple, the happy young couple, look down and to her and say goodnight. Scarlet watches them go and cries. Scarlet is crying in more than half of the the time she's on screen in this first part. Always, anytime she looks at Ashley, her eyes begin to water. Lots of swooning and and sighing and and weepy wet tears and moaning her fate. The next morning, Ashley is leaving, and Melanie is so distraught that she won't be going to the station to see him off. So distraught that she can't even get out of bed. Scarlet, of course, takes advantage of her absence to flirt with Ashley, asking if she can go to the station with him. He declines. The weather is too rainy or something, and he doesn't want her to to something-something, catch a cold or whatnot. Uh, Giving him a new sash for his uniform and telling him she'd do anything for him. She gives him a, it's a yellow sash that like goes around his waist and they walk over to another cool scene where they're just against the backdrop of a, a window and it's raining outside. Mm-hmm. So it's very, there's a lot of really expansive wide shots in this movie. So this is one of the few close intimate scenes yeah. we get them lighted against this window and having this conversation. Uh, he takes her up on the offer of doing anything for him and uh, makes her promise to look after Melanie. She'll need all the support she can get once the war ends, and their world ends with it. You don't mean the Yankees are going to win, gasps Scarlet, and Ashley reveals that it's gotten so bad that his men are fighting barefoot in the snow now. As he heads towards the door, Scarlet asks him to kiss her, and receives a chaste grandma kiss on the forehead. Nuts to that, says Scarlet, and pulls Ashley into a real kiss. (laughs) He lingers for a second, but then pulls himself out of the spider's web and declines her advances for roughly the 7,453rd time. Scarlet watches him leave through the rain-soaked window and whispers to herself, After the war, attempt number 7,454. (laughs) (laughs) She is relentless. Any opportunity. 
any opportunity. She just she just hovers. It's <laughs> annoying to see. It's annoying to watch it because God damn it. Like you're he's married. He you're in his house with his wife. Just live it alone. Like you've got other suitors who yeah, just give it up. She is constantly waiting in the wings with a prepared statement. She just she just hovers at the edges of them and just waits for Melanie to leave and then just swoops in and hey, guess what? Do, do you love me now? How about now? And then 2 seconds later well, how about now? It's is, is disrespectful. It now? Will, you, will you kiss me now? How about now? <laughs> <laughs> Remember, says Scarlet, 7,454 no's and a yes is a yes. yes. <laughs> uh, then uh, more text. This is a very text-heavy movie. Atlanta prayed while onward surged the triumphant Yankees. Heads were high, but hearts were heavy as the wounded and the refugees poured into unhappy Georgia. Then we see the inside of a church and a large stained glass window with Jesus on it. And Scarlet and Melanie uh, are tending to the wounded soldiers. One is just, he's talking about how he hasn't seen his family and how he misses them and whatnot. And they're, yeah. just, they're just smiling and nodding. Go, uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. They're give... probably not going to see them ever again. Yeah, I'm just giving him company while he dies. Yeah. After their shift, they're approached by a prostitute as they leave. We know it's a prostitute because she's uh, dressed very garrulish. Garrulishly. Garrulishly? Yes, thank you. Jesus. She has... The colors in her outfit are slightly uh, more pastel mm-hmm. than is appropriate. Yeah, it's more on the like red, pinkish... Uh, she, the prostitute complains that she's tried twice to give money to the cause, but has been turned away because of her profession, and hands Melanie 50 pieces of gold wrapped in a handkerchief. A handkerchief with the initials RB on it. Mm, who Ooh. could it be? Rhett Butler. And then uh, to drive the point home even farther, uh, the prostitute then drives away in Rhett Butler's carriage. Scarlet sees this and says that if she weren't such a lady, she'd give that man a talking to. And then more text. That's the we get that little scene sandwiched in between two pieces of uh, narration text. Yeah. Like, what does she care? You know, if she doesn't care, if she doesn't want to be with Red Butler, well, then why does she care about who he's, uh, who he knows, and who he gives his carriage to, and that. Well, that is the whole game that people like that are playing is that everyone has to play along with their rules. Mm. And if they aren't, that gives you license to look down your nose at them. He has vi- he has gone so far off script. How dare he? Then more text. Panic hit the city with the first of Sherman shells. Helpless and unarmed, the populace fled from the oncoming juggernaut. And desperately, the gallant remnants of an army marched out to face the foe. Uh, This over two columns of people. One of the columns is heading away from the fighting with bundles of whatever they can carry over their shoulders, the refugees trying to escape the war. And the other column is heading towards the fighting with guns in hand as shells fall all around them. This, yeah, we, at this point, we can see the edges of the war beginning to creep closer and closer. You're starting to have wounded soldiers trickle in and then now the shelling is starting so inch by inch the war is moving closer 
And then the color orange becomes more and more prominent also on screen, as you see, as I was talking about earlier, downtown Atlanta, it's all like clay, like orange clay on the on the ground, and the sky is uh, visibly more orange as well to reflect fires and stuff like that. So We start on this very idyllic, utopia-like green pastures and blue skies yeah. paradise with the war being this very nebulous far off thing and then it just inches closer and closer and the the dream begins to wilt and then the blood starts to flow and you start seeing the ugly reality of things and yeah. then the shelling actually starts and the dream just starts to fray and fall apart yeah it literally looks like it, everything is just going down in flames the paradise begins to burn mm. Inside the church again, the priest is performing last rites and a shell shatters the huge stained glass window, which he doesn't even flinch. When this happens, he just continues on with his last rites. Every inch of the church is taken up with wounded soldiers, and Scarlet and Dr. Mead make their way through the ocean of suffering, with the doctor giving an apology for the lack of medicine here and an order for an amputation there. They yeah, come to a young man, and he goes, oh, this leg is going to have to go. And the guy goes, no, no, and he starts freaking out, and they don't even have any anesthetics. Somebody's like, we don't have any anesthetic. And the doctor says, well, we just got to do it without anesthetic yeah. then. And the guy starts screaming even more. <sighs> and... Yeah, it's every uh, inch of floor space is taken up with beds. There's some people that don't even have beds. Some are just yeah. leaning up against the wall. They are beyond capacity at this point. It is starting to overflow. The doctor then says he hasn't seen his family in three days, so he's going home for half an hour. On the way out, he notices one soldier that's died and tells a nurse that they can free up that bed now. Uh, the man prescribed amputation is taken into the back room screaming, and Scarlet hesitates in the doorway to the room. She's the nurse, uh, and then turns around to leave the, the church. She pauses in the doorway, and the screaming just gets worse and worse, and the doctor's going, start the cutting, start the cutting, and the guy's, no, Where's the nurse? No, yeah, where's the nurse? And she just stops in the doorway, and just shakes her head and turns around and just scans. Yeah, she's had enough of that. Yeah. She doesn't want any more men screaming and dying. She doesn't want it, she says. She's almost like stamping her foot in a, in a childish tantrum as she goes out. Yeah. I don't wanna. Uh, outside, the shelling and chaos rage on, and Scarlet sees the familiar face of Big Sam in the column of people heading towards the fighting. Big Sam was one of the slaves that worked on her plantation. Yes. She runs up to him, and, tell, and he tells her that her mother is sick, uh, just a little sick. And her father wasn't allowed to fight because of his bad knee, which is actually something they mentioned when her father first uh, appears. He jumps over the fence on the horse. Mm -hmm. He gets off the horse and uh, Scarlet chides him like, you shouldn't be jumping fences. You you've already injured your knee once doing that. You're going yeah. to do it again. So they actually that actually had a point. Mm. And they bring it up here very quickly. She tries to talk to him. And he gives her these few details and then uh, a soldier comes along and say, hey, we can't we got to march towards the fight. and You can't talk. Go. So they part ways, and Scarlet pushes her way upstream through the river of people fleeing and fighting until Butler appears in a carriage and shouts at her to hop mm -hmm. in. They do a really good job of making it feel like real chaos. Yeah, that, I think when we were talking together after watching the, the first part, I was telling you, I think it felt like really good organized chaos, and to the point that it's so organized it doesn't look orchestrated in a way like it looks like you know, people are, are 
they know it so well they know where they're supposed to go at what time it just it's really well organized scene it's very hectic yeah like everyone knows where they're going but there's just so many people going in the same direction yeah that when she's moving in the opposite direction of it really like she's swimming upstream through people she's Mm. almost like having to reach out and grab and like pull herself up yeah through the people yeah one thing that I didn't uh, like about her interaction with Big Sam is that, oh, he's like, yeah, don't worry. We're going to hold up the, we're going to beat the Yankees. We're going to win the war for, yeah. for the South. We're and gonna, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure, a... I'm sure that some of the, the slaves were sent to war to, oh, to, uh, to battle, but I don't think any, I wouldn't think that any of them were enthusiastic about beating the Yankees because it would have meant that the, that slavery would have continued. Yes, Big Sam did have a big, gross uh, smile on his face and a very uh, yes master attitude towards Scarlet. He seemed, yes, uh, unrealistically excited about going to fight for the uh, his own slavery. Yeah. His own right to be enslaved. Yeah. It's part of the the romance of the South. It's the last age of gallantry of of knights and ladies and of master and slave. Mm. Like you could you could hear the hunger in their voice in that line when they delivered it. Yeah. Damn it! It's the last time we got to have slaves. What a, what a pity! Says Gone with the Wind. She hops in the carriage with Butler and tells him she's terrified and has to get out of the city. And Butler says the two of them should leave together. He's been waiting for her to grow up and get that sad-eyed Ashley Wilkes out of her head. They arrive at Aunt Pitypat's house, and Butler asks if she's going to, getting out of the city or going with him. She gets out and says she'll hate and despise him until she dies, and her uh, skirt catches on the carriage as she leaves. Yeah. Recurring thing of her trying to be haughty and, and walk away from him, and her, her big, enormous dresses catching on things. Aunt Pitypat herself is packing up her carriage to get the hell out of Dodge. She was just going to abandon Scarlet because Scarlet was supposed to be at work right now. Uh, and Scarlet wants to go with her, but Dr. Mead comes up and tells her that she must stay with Melanie and help deliver the baby. Scarlet argues that she doesn't know anything about delivering babies, and her servant Prissy chimes in and says she knows all about it, so don't worry. She'll stay behind too. Prissy's voice is annoyingly high-pitched. Yes. Prissy is one of those adult women that still has a five-year-old squeaky voice, yeah. and women like that freak me out. Yeah. She's, I don't even know that I can do it. She's like, and I know all about it. Mm, and yep. I, I've, done, I've done lots and lots. I know all about babies. Yeah, she's supposed to be the, air quotes, simple slave. So yeah. she not only has a high-pitched voice like a child, she speaks in a childish way as well. Yeah. The whole thing is gross. Dr. Mead tells Scarlet to do it for Ashley. And Scarlet concedes that she did promise him something. She promised him to to stay there and to take care of Melanie. Yep. Aunt Pitypat then leaves without her. And the camera zooms in for a close-up of Scarlet and she whispers, I hate you, Melanie. I hate you. And I I hate hate your your baby. I hate your stupid baby. (laughs) Scarlet continually just being, being annoyed at how the war is interrupting her so proper that she's trying to stage yeah jesus christ there are yeah there are things that are way more important i am trying to stage a goddamn drama says scarlet (laughs) and i'm sick of all these wounded soldiers everybody's getting in my way 
I'm tired of all this uh, trying to outlaw slavery. Can we not do this later? Then we get more text, but it's a single giant word. Siege! Over the top of cannons firing. And then more text. The skies rained death. For 35 days, a battered Atlanta hung grimly on, hoping for a miracle. Then there fell a silence, more terrifying than the pounding of the cannons. We then see a lone soldier riding quickly down the road, dust trailing behind in front of the house Scarlet and Melanie are in. Scarlet runs in front of him, begging him to stop, and, tell, and he tells her the army is evacuating south and she should too. Because the Yankees are coming. The Yankees are coming. They're at the door. She heads back inside, yelling at Prissy to start packing everything because they're heading back to Tara right away. She heads up the stairs to tell Melanie, and Relanie, Melanie replies, Psych! I'm in labor. <laughs> Sucks to suck. <laughs> We're stuck. Baby's coming. Scarlet sits by her side with a grimace, and Melanie tells her she's been as sweet as a sister to her. And will she take the baby if Melanie dies? She says that she feels like she's going to die giving birth. Yeah, I imagine uh, a lot of women did back in those days. So, yeah. I yeah, odds are. Um, no epidural, no no, no uh, pain management, yeah. Nope, you got a bed and a baby. Figure it out. Scarlet tells her to knock it off and sends Prissy to go get the doctor. Sometime later, a uh, sweating Scarlet fans Melanie and complains that it's not even noon and the room is like an oven. And what's taking Prissy so long? This scene is made worse because due to modesty standards of the time, they just have Melanie over underneath this giant quilt. Mm -hmm. So she's in this swelteringly hot room underneath yeah. like a foot of blanket. Yeah. You're just going to deliver this baby straight into an oven. Just... It, yeah, I felt bad for her. Out of the oven, into the oven. She then hears singing outside and looks to see Prissy returning, but with no doctor. Prissy's just, she's like sing-songing to herself and clearly just taking her sweet-ass time in no hurry at all, just slowly walking up the, the pathway to the house. Percy enters and tells her that Dr. Mead is down at the train station tending to wounded soldiers, and she was too afraid to go down there because she's scared of dead people. Scarlet tells her to stay with Melanie. She'll go get the doctor. At the train station, the dead and dying carpet the ground to the horizon, and Scarlet waves through them in her search. This is a really impressive scene. Yeah, there's a, a big, really open space where just hundreds and hundreds of people laying down in the streets. Yeah, it's the train yard. They're even laid over the tracks. There's yeah. so many of them. And the camera starts out with a close-up of Scarlet where she starts to walk through and it just zooms out farther and farther and just keeps moving back and keeps moving back. And it's just, yeah, more and more wounded. More and more wounded and then she becomes smaller and smaller in that sea of wounded people. Yeah, she's just walking through an ocean of corpses. Yeah. And it, it zooms out and zooms out and then eventually settles with, in the corner, a tattered Confederate flag. Yeah. Which is a good... Uh, this movie in a nutshell because this movie is visually stunning a lot of the time but the racism and the problematic stuff and the romanticization of the south and slavery 
is always hanging over everything and it's just this mm-hmm. constant sour note so just that that breathtaking scene of the zoom out of the soldiers and you're just in awe of it and then we zoom out to oh there's the confederate flag and it's like oh yep there's the the big turd on yeah. on top of the the beauty yeah she makes her way through the corpses and finds the doctor tending the wounded inside the station building and tells him that the baby is coming and she needs help. He's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. So do all these people, says the doctor. He's got no chloroform, no bandages, no way to ease the pain. He's watching men bleed out in front of him and she wants him to leave for a baby. No, she'll have to do it herself. Yeah, he essentially tells her, you know, what we just said, like, you know, women have been doing this for a long time, so she, Melanie, can do it. Yeah, he's not as abrasive as I'm making him sound in the synopsis. He's very, he's very gentle with his, you've got this, and yeah, women have been doing this on their own for millennia. You, you can handle it. I've got to, I've got to do my part, and you've got to do your part, so he's not. He doesn't aggressively rebuke her or anything. No, but he also, you know, clearly makes her understand that this takes priority over a baby being born. Like, there are people, there's hundreds and hundreds of people here dying, and they won't have any other help. Yeah, and this highlights another thing we were talking about, where it's it's hard to be invested at all in the petty drama of the actual main characters Yeah, when it's set against this backdrop of enormous suffering and especially in that scene where you when you see her walking and you as the camera backs out where you see just the more and more people adding onto the screen you're just like you're just literally one person amongst so many wounded and you're healthy and you're just overall living well Whereas there are people right there who are dying in the streets. Yeah, literally stepping over corpses going, oh, excuse me, my problems, my problems, excuse me, my problems. (laughs) Sorry, oh, pardon me, my problems. (laughs) God, could you go die somewhere else? Jeez. Back at the house, Scarlet tells Prissy uh, they're on their own. And at that point, Prissy reveals that she lied about knowing how to deliver babies, at which point Scarlet just fucking decks her. Yeah, she gives her. That's another slab that she in there that she gives. That's why I was saying Scarlet is very good at slapping people. I would not classify that as a slap. A sl- that seemed like it was closed fist, like over the head. Like she just decks her Eesh. in a really uncomfortable and, and gross. Violence is always gross, but when you're hitting your slaves, it 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 is enters into a new level of grossness. Especially like you feel you feel also for Prissy in the scene like I I don't know how to explain it but just the fact that she she wanted to be important she wanted it to be you know to be of literally of service to, to them she wanted to try to think that she would be able to help and it also I don't know it takes courage to admit that you're not able to do something and that and that she lied and is knowing that in that era especially that there wouldn't be consequences for her and like the consequences coming right away with the that slap and with that fist is just yeah I I was disgusted yeah probably the shittiest thing we see Scarlet do in the first half yes her list of sins is many but this is the greatest yeah 
She then tells Prissy to get hot water, twine, and scissors, and heads back to Melanie's room. In silhouette, we see Scarlet holding Melanie's hand and telling her to scream as loud as she wants. There's no one around to hear. Next scene is Prissy running up to a brothel and yelling for Captain Butler. He opens a second-story window and, with a prostitute on each arm, asks Prissy what's the matter. She tells him that Melanie has had her baby and that Scarlet sent her to get him because they need his carriage to get out of the city. Butler replies that the army took his horse and carriage, but he'll see what he can do. And he invites Prissy to come inside the brothel, and uh, Prissy declines because her mother would tan her hide if she yes. ever, if she ever went into a brothel. And then he tells her that the army took his carriage, and then he doesn't. He's laughing at Prissy. Yeah. And this whole interaction, him and the prostitutes, they're all like, oh, yeah, what is this simpleton need from us? It's a very condescending interaction with yeah. Percy. And it doesn't seem like he was actually going to help. I did not get the feeling that he was actually going to help from this interaction. I didn't, no, I didn't feel that either because he was clearly, you know, enjoying his fun with, uh, with the ladies upstairs. So I didn't feel like he, we wouldn't see him at any point in that, you know, in that sequence uh, again. This is also a new... Everyone everyone is sinking to new lows now. Uh, Scarlet is uh, hitting her slaves and uh, Rhett Butler. We knew that he is associated with prostitutes, but this yeah. is the first time we see him actually in the brothel. This is the most uh, scoundrelish thing he's done yeah. as well. And when when he's when he uh gets prissy to leave he turns to the prostitutes and say oh does anyone have a horse and carriage they care to to donate to a good cause ha 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 in a very joking way that also why very condescending which is not necessarily an attitude that we've seen him have before that's his first his first interaction also with one of the slave characters in the in the movie but yeah it's all around i mean i'm gonna touch on that you know when we go through our opinion of the movie but it just for a movie that's been so popular and you know um characters as Scarlett o'hara and red butler who people seem to generally like i am finding i they're completely dislikable to me like i've never i had never seen the whole movie entirety i had only seen like bits and pieces and i think most of the bits and pieces that i've seen are probably for the from the second part of the movie and it just does it's not what this movie promised to be in terms of like romance and and grand characters it's they're shitty as hell they're both despicable people yeah but 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 they have fancy clothes and carriages, and I want to have fancy clothes and carriages. So I don't give a fuck. I can overlook the fact that they're both sociopaths because I want to be a sociopath. Uh-uh. Nope. <laughs> I dream of being a sociopath every night. But he does help out. We cut to a carriage pulling up to Pity Pat's house, and Butler stepping out to greet Scarlet and Prissy. He asks what the plan is, and when Scarlet says they're going to Terra, he asks her... Scarlet says they're going to Terra. He tells her that there's fighting all around Terra and she would have to fight her way through the Yankee army with a baby and, quote, simple-minded darky to get there. Oh, oh, I did not catch that when we were watching. I did not either. Ugh. 
Yeah, talking about a role that tarnishes Clark Gable's reputation. Yeah, it just keeps on getting worse. Yep, sink into news, new lows. How deep can we go? Is there a bottom? Let's find out. <sighs> Scarlet responds with a screaming tantrum, shouting that she doesn't care. She wants her mother. She wants to go home. And she'll walk if she has to. I mean, I don't want to give any spoilers, but... Red Butler does something in the second half of the movie that is will definitely bring uh, Clark Gable <laughs> down I, forever for me, I think. Yep, let's find that bottom. Yep, I'm not looking forward to it. I know it's coming and I'm not looking forward to it. Brace for impact. Butler comforts her with an embrace, gives her a handkerchief to blow her nose, and says, okay, they'll do it. As they load Melanie and the baby into the carriage, a huge fire looms on the horizon, and Butler explains that the army has set fire to the ammunition warehouse so the Yankees can't resupply from it, and they have to head towards the fire because it's along the the only road that isn't blocked. This was another really visually beautiful scene, the fire on the horizon. Looks like they painted it into the background. Mm, yes. Yeah. Glowing orange. Yeah. Casting orange light on everything. It's fantastic effect all that sequence when they're just getting out of atlanta and moving through the through the train yard and, and all that it's really well done it's uh, just really epic yes this is a, a gorgeous epic sequence visually anyway yes visually as they make their way through town uh, looters smash windows and attempt to steal the horse and carriage but butler punches and kicks them away <laughs> With the, the very stock, like, smack, whack sound yeah. effects as he punches and kicks them multiple times. They are very insistent about getting the horse, but he defends it. The fire spreads as they near the warehouses until the entire town is ablaze around them, and Butler has to jump off and cover the horse's eyes with a blanket so it will keep moving. As he leads it through the sea of flames, the fire reaches the ammunition, and we get to see several buildings and a boxcar explode, ending with the carriage and its riders silhouetted against a massive two-story mansion collapsing into a burning pile of ash. Yeah. It's this huge building that they're just takes up the entire background, and they're just silhouetted against it as they slowly make their way out, and then as they pass it, it just collapses, and the flames just and sparks just billow up. It's It's beautiful. Safely out of the city, Scarlet and company join the slow procession of refugees fleeing, and Butler tells her to take it all in because someday she'll be able to tell her grandchildren how she watched the Old South disappear one night. Scarlet says she hates all of them for getting them into this mess with their swaggering and boasting, and that Butler can be proud that he was smarter than any of them for not joining the fight. The camera zooms in on Butler's face, and under his breath he says, I'm not so proud. They continue on, and once they reach the turn to Tara, Butler stops the carriage and asks if Scarlet is still determined to go there. She says she is, and she knows they'll make it. Butler steps out of the carriage and says that she'll make it, not him, because he's going to join the army. Mm -hmm. I did not expect that. No, this is a silly twist. Yeah. Scarlet thinks he's joking at first, but once he convinces her he's serious, she's outraged at being abandoned and demands to know why. Why? Butler says maybe it's because he's a sucker for lost causes, or maybe he's just ashamed of himself. Who knows? He should be ashamed, says Scarlet, leaving her alone and helpless. You? Helpless? laughs Butler, 
God help anyone who captures you. He then asks her to get down so he can say goodbye. She refuses, and he pulls her off the carriage anyway and drags her over to a fence by the side of the road. Get down. No. Okay. <laughs> I'll move you. Yeah. I'll, I'll show you how to get down. She says she'll never forgive him, and he replies that he'll never forgive himself and doesn't even know why he's doing it. He does know one thing, though. He loves her. Because they're the same kind of person, selfish and shrewd, and able to call things what they really are. Never mind about loving me. You're just sending a soldier to his death with a beautiful memory. In a weird way, this reminded me of a scene with Sabra and Yancy in Simran, where... He, uh, you know, when she tells him that she'll she'll never for, uh, forgive him if he goes through with the those laws to give citizenship to the Indians, and he's like, "Never, that's probably too long," you know, There's something of that sort. When he's telling her that, yeah, never, uh, is a long time. Yeah, never's a long time. Maybe not in my lifetime, but not not never. Yep common relationship tactic in these days to angrily proclaim that you hate the person hate your partner forever and ever yeah. <laughs> until the end of time yeah says so to send him off with a beautiful memory kiss me scarlet kiss me they smooch and the music soars <laughs> it's been aggressive this entire time but at this point it becomes really overwhelming the crescendo of the kiss yeah this is the climax this is not necessarily like a, a voluntary kiss also he's definitely forcing the kiss on her yes my next note scarlet pushes him away and slaps him <laughs> saying he's no gentleman and she hopes he gets blown into a million pieces he gives her his gun for protection and leaves and scarlet returns to the carriage and weeps and this this is another really visually beautiful scene because they still have the glow from the fire, mm -hmm. so they're entirely just shaded in red for yeah. this entire sequence. It's almost monochrome, just them in red. And yeah, this twist with Butler suddenly growing a conscience and deciding to join the army in the 11th hour. Boo. Boo. I would have... I would have liked him better if he stuck to his scoundrel guns and was like, "No, this is stupid, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take part in this." This, the, the fact that he falls for the romance of it, of war. Yeah. He's smarter than that. He has been, he has been written up to this point to be smarter than that. Well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I don't buy it. <laughs> if the camera followed him down the road and he went, oh, Jesus, I had to get away from that. Oh, my God. <laughs> then I would have accepted this. <laughs> Christ, I want to bone that lady. But, oh, Jesus. <laughs> the next scene is Scarlet hiding with the carriage under a bridge at night as rain pours and soldiers pass by overhead. Again, I have, I don't know why I have those like flashbacks from other movies, but this reminded me of Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, when, when the hobbits are hiding from, oh, I don't remember. The orcs? What, uh, no, not from the orcs. Ring wraiths? Uh, from the, those like uh, dark shapes on the, on the. The Nazgul? The Nazguls, yes. Yes, they're hiding in the in the forest and they're uh, under uh, a tree branch and 
I I have no idea why that reminded me of that because it's definitely not hiding. That's similar hiding, but Scarlet hides from the orcs. Yeah, and, and it's raining in the scene, and they're all soaked, and I I felt really bad for the baby this whole time. Yeah, baby, but also for the horse. Like the horse is his like knee deep in water, and it's hiding, and she's trying to like shush it when it uh, when it hisses at some point uh, so that they don't get discovered it just felt bad for everybody involved they just they linger on that scene for a good 30 seconds too and yeah. just the camera just starting far out and they're just zooming closer and closer yeah. to scarlet and then the next scene is them passing through an empty field which is really yellow yeah barren yellow field and a giant rainbow in the sky because the, the rain has ended at that point. Scarlet continues on over a road clogged with the wreckage of wagons, scorched trees, and corpses while vultures fly in circles overhead. It's just uh, completely covered in wreckage. Mm-hmm. She's passing through the, the remnants of battlefields. Yeah. The baby cries and Prissy complains that they haven't got anything to eat. Scarlet tells her to hush. They're almost at Twelve Oaks and will find food there. Upon arriving at Twelve Oaks, they find it in ruins and John Wilkes is buried in a shabby grave in the yard. It's like falling apart. It's gray and the walls are missing and like the yeah. ceiling is caved in and part of the giant staircase has fallen apart and it's it's been ransacked. It's been destroyed. It's been yeah. destroyed in one of the battles. Yeah. And we get a, another shot of that sign that says John Wilkes and uh, you know any uh, disturbance of the peace will be prosecuted. Yeah. And the sign is just hanging and fallen at this point and they even changed the color for the ruin it's all gray and saturated there's no color in anything it's the war has leached the very color out of the utopia it's all burnt and charred and ruins now not so much of a utopia anymore yep the meteor has struck and we are now looking at the crater Mm. audiences back then weep modern audiences cheer (laughs) A cow wanders around the rubble, and Scarlet tells Prissy to tie it to the carriage so they'll have milk for the baby. And Prissy, I'm scared of cows. And Scarlet, shut up and do it. And so they tie the cow to the back of the carriage. Then, under cover of darkness, they finally make it back to Terra, but it's too dark to see if the house is still standing. And when Scarlet whips the horse to move closer, the horse collapses and dies. Because the scene before that, it had had foam around its mouth. Yeah, because they had been pushing it too hard and I hope that was fake foam I hope they didn't really actually push that horse hard enough for it to really get foam around its mouth I hope not I really hope not I hope that they had enough sense in them to uh, not mistreat the animal I mean they're beating people in this movie so I would not be surprised that they're beating animals too Mm. so the the horse comes to a stop and she whips it to get closer and it just collapses it just falls over and is dead so she gets off the carriage and moves forward on foot. Uh, the clouds part, sending a beam of moonlight to illuminate Scarlet's old home, standing seemingly untouched by the war. This was a good staging of the scene. They did well with the drama of, oh, is it there? Is it there? And then the, the par- clouds part and the, the beam of moonlight falling down on the, the manor like a spotlight. Yeah. Very uh, dramatic, appropriately dramatic. Scarlet runs to the door and is greeted by her disheveled-looking father and Mammy. 
her dad just looks like a zombie. He doesn't even react when he opens the door. He just stands there and she goes and hugs him and he hugs her back, but he doesn't say anything. He's not, there's no joyous reaction or anything. He's just, he looks shell-shocked. She asks Mammy where her mother is and Mammy says that her sisters came down with typhoid and have recovered from it. Her mother caught it too and last night, and she trails off. Scarlet turns away and calls repeatedly for her mother, mother while Mammy begins to cry. Until Scarlet enters the room where they all used to pray together and sees her mother's body laid out on a small bed. She creeps closer in shock, then screams and falls to her knees, sobbing. And I don't know what we're supposed to feel here, because Scarlet's mother has never been anything other than awful, so... Yeah, and we don't even see her that much in the movie. No. Like the apart there's just that first scene when she comes back from that baby being born where and dead. Where she's celebrating the death of an infant. Yeah. Yep. And then the scene where they pray together, that's it. And she also comforts her when Scarlet becomes a widow and sends her off to Atlanta, but yeah. She's on screen for less than five minutes yeah, in this movie. Collectively less than five minutes and during those five minutes is a, a terrible nightmare person. Yeah. So what are we supposed to feel here? It's certainly not sympathy. Well, sympathy for just, you know, the feeling of losing one's parents. Yes. But not sympathy specifically for that character. I'll take it because it's as good as we're going to get. <laughs> the next day, Scarlet is told by Mammy what happened while she was away. Yankees occupied the house and either stole or burned everything. Scarlet then goes to see her father, who's looking over their remaining wealth, which is entirely invested in Confederate bonds. Yeah. Oh boy. All they got left. My mattress stuffed full of Confederate bills. Someday it'll be good again. She asks him what they'll do with no money and no food, and he replies that her mother will know what to do. So he's just completely lost the reservation at this point. Yes. She hugs him and tells him not to worry. She's home now. She walks through the house and is assaulted by Mammy, Pork, and Prissy about all the mounting problems. There's no food for the sick folks or the baby. Her sisters are requesting sponge baths. And who's going to milk this cow, Miss Scarlet? She just, <laughs> she walks in a straight line and people just start swarming her with all this. They want a sponge bath. There's no food. Who's going to milk this cow? She has become like the focal point of yeah. she's clearly in charge now yes. and has just become the manager and uh, she's the lady of the house yep and all the the people are bringing her all the problems what are we gonna do at what point i, I turned to you and i was like how about you go get that dead horse and get the meat <laughs> off of it because that's food she wanders in a daze out to the ruined garden and pulls a stunted turnip from the ground, takes a bite, spits it back up, and falls to the dirt, sobbing. Then she slowly rises, and raising her fists to heaven, says, As God as my witness, I will never go hungry again, nor any of my folk. If I have to lie, steal, cheat, or kill, as God as my witness, I'll never be hungry again. The camera pulls back as the music swells, and we see Scarlet silhouetted against the orange evening sky, skirt billowing in the wind. Intermission. Yes. This felt like the beginning of a villain origin story. For Scarlet? <laughs> yes, this intermission where she's raising her fist and crying, I will drag God kipping, kicking and screaming <laughs> from his throne. 
and I will never be hungry again and swearing to, to kill and cheat and steal as much as she needs to. No matter how much blood I have to wade through, I will triumph. She I mean, screams. I I don't know if I felt like it was the beginning of a, of a, a villain story or uh, the origin of a villain, but definitely there's definitely going to be some sort of, I guess, trying to take revenge on everything that uh, the world has taken from her. Yes. Maybe you didn't feel like villain origin story because she was already a villain. Yes. <laughs> that, no, that was exactly my thought. Like She was already... She's not a likable character. I'm sorry for everybody out there who loves this movie, but she is not a likable character. No. She's a, a spoiled child. Yeah, she's definitely a brat. She expects that everything is going to come to her. I mean, she's a stubborn spoiled child, but <laughs> that's not necessarily a good thing no i mean the stubbornness might also give her resilience which might be useful in the second part of the movie mm. you know with the end of the war and the restoration and all that yes but... her stubbornness is what allows her to survive yes but there's also massive negatives that go along with it oh definitely her def her uh, mistreatment of everyone around her for one thing yep yeah, her narcissism about how Stop all this uh, silly war nonsense so I can have my telenovela. Yeah, it's not about you, Scarlet. <laughs> well, at this point, we usually ask what you think yeah. about it, but we haven't finished the movie. Well, we still have opinions about the uh, about this first half. Yeah. What did you think of the first half? Uh, definitely not what I was expecting. This, this movie has always been painted to me as the most romantic love story of all time. And so far, it's not that. And it's... We, you and I have talked about the the movie, about the, the first half after we watched it. And it's just... There's lots to say about it. The characters to me are not appealing. That I don't feel any attachment to any of them. Apart from uh, Miami, who's definitely a comedic relief. And the only likable one because she... <laughs> puts Scarlett in her place mostly. Yeah, it's pretty bad when the most likable character in a movie is a, a racist caricature. Yes. Yeah. I'm, yeah. So far, I'm not feeling either interest for the, for the characters or for the story that's unfolding because I was expecting it more to be about the war or about slavery in itself and it, it's not it's like just happening in the background yeah it's all happening in the background and then the characters that we have so far are just they serve a purpose but it's more like the war is punctuating their lives instead of them punctuating the story of the war yeah i think it says a lot about how relationships were viewed in yesteryear if this is the uh the shining example of romance they're holding up. Oh, boy. Yeah. Did not have very healthy views of what a relationship should be like. I think there's certainly a, a tension between Scarlet and uh, Butler. Red Butler. But it's not, a, it's not a healthy dynamic they have. It's not... No, and there's also a little bit of tension between her and Ashley, but that also isn't healthy. He's married. He's got a child... Uh, on the way, granted, he probably, uh, when he leaves after Christmas, he probably doesn't know that he has a child on the way. But 
it's a movie romance because it's very passionate and there's lots of yeah. strong feelings and I hate yous and uh, kiss me, kiss me. And, you know, but like, why is why would it be attractive to watch a woman try to steal somebody else's husband and like be friends and family with now with that person's wife? Yeah. It just, it, it's not. Yes, this movie is definitely selling a fantasy that I am not resonating with at yeah. all. And the fact that it resonates with so many people is a little worrying. Yeah. And at the beginning, you know, the, the opening that says, oh, this is, you know, this is a story of the old South and all that. Like, I would have loved it way more if this was an actual story about the South, not about the characters. Like, I would want uh, to have more about the the Civil War. I would want to see. I got to think about how, uh, how to say this. Remember please audience that English is my second language I would love to see more of the slaves life on screen because after all like they're also part of that story they're also part of the south they're part of the they're the whole reason why the war broke out because the north wanted to abolish slavery and the south wanted to, uh, to keep it so I would have loved to have them more uh, be more central to the story no this is all about the white royalty of the south tumbling from their throne i know and that also says a lot about how you know this country looks at its own history it's like the slaves are not part of it yeah the good old days when we were on top yeah is the fantasy which is deplorable and regrettable because this country wasn't built on just on the back of uh, all white people it was built a lot on the back of slaves and what's even more bizarre to me is it's a fantasy about being in this super rigid social structure where women are just objects and having to not show their cleavage before 3 p.m. and go take a nap because you're uh, you gotta get your beauty sleep dainty and fragile and who fantasizes about living in a cage like this? This is bizarre. I'm sure life like this had, uh, you know, had its advantages for some people. If oh, you were, sure. If you were a plantation uh, owner, if you had uh, a family that lived on the plantation with you, then you were, I'm not going to say on top of the world, but you definitely were, you know, richer than some other people around. Yeah, the reason that they come up with these arbitrary overly complicated social rules is because they have nothing better to do yeah yeah it's an amusement it's uh you know a trick for you know who's going to know all the rules and who's going to respect them and what rules you can break yeah once large groups of people get into a position where they don't have any work to do themselves things get real stupid real quick yeah i just thinking about the audiences watching this and the fantasy i wish i could be rich and stupid (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, by the time we, the audiences that would have watched us, so 1939, that would have been just about 70 years after uh, the Civil War. It's within the time frame of, if not people who were alive during the time, people who could have had parents alive during the time. And so grown up hearing stories about this and the nostalgia for it yeah shit i had family members who were born in the 1960s who had nostalgia for the old south like this yeah so 
So it's within the realm of things that they either knew or would have uh, heard about. And the golden yeah, age, the golden age, <laughs> the supposed golden age that, of America that passed before they were born. Yeah. So they have this nostalgia for a time they've never lived in. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, you know, when you and I were kids or, you know, parents would talk about the, the 60s, 70s, 80s. And they're like, oh, good for you. But I don't, I don't know shit about it. Yep. I am interested to see where it goes. Although from some of the snippets you've told me, I, I have less, I don't have hope it'll turn out well. I, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to say anything, but. I am um, grotesquely curious to see just how bad these characters become. <laughs> how much worse. Yeah. I want it to be full heel turn for Scarlet at this point and her just, just sink lower and lower and just become more and more of a villain. I don't know if about her character or about her personality. I just uh, I've read some things about what happens in the second half of the movie and I all I can say is I'm not looking forward to it. I, it is not it's not going to be the a depiction of love and healthy relationships as I would like to see it, but I'll leave it at that. On the other hand, when you take out the, you know, the story, the characters and all that, visually, it's stunning. Yes, that is the thing about this movie. It makes you consider questions about art, like how much are you willing to forgive? Yeah. And how can something be so beautiful and so ugly at the same time? Yeah, the definitely some of the shots are really well made. Like the shot that we were talking about with her father, with Scarlett and her father at the beginning when they're talking about Ashley and they stop under the tree and it, it looks like a painting. That was beautiful to me. It looked like pastel. It was... It, just really didn't look like film there's a lot of other scenes especially in atlanta uh, during the war when same thing like you see so many vibrant colors that it doesn't look like it's just shot it almost looks like maybe somebody went over some of the uh, the frames and colored even with a sharper orange to make it brighter to the make way, those colors uh, brighter the way they colored over wings yeah, you know the the, the flames fire. yeah the fire it was yeah that was just really really beautiful and that aerial almost shot not aerial but uh that shot when she's walking to the train station to find the doctor and the uh, camera like, zooms out and you just see her get lost in uh, a sea of wounded man that also was breathtaking in itself just because the way it's shot but also just the things that you see on screen like you see her walking through a sea of wounded people and that just it puts things into perspectives also like to us the civil war is something that just you know far away in time that we would have never known or that none of our relatives uh, were a part of really or none of the relatives that we knew in our lifetime were a part of so it's 
I don't know, just to see a visual representation of it was breathtaking to me. Makes it more real. Yeah. It's very fitting that it's the director, right, who's also directing Wizard of Oz? Yes, Fleming. Yeah, it it has the same feel of the Wizard of Oz in that it feels like a momentous occasion. Mm-hmm. Like this, there's never going to be another movie like this. Right. For For better or for worse, it is a unique thing. And I'm not necessarily looking forward <laughs> to seeing how it goes. But that that shaking the fist and claiming that the gloves are off from Scarlet. Yeah, I don't care if I have to kill. I'm going to eat. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it not, has my attention. Not the greatest lines, but... If you're you're calling your shot like that, right? This is where the gloves come off. Okay, okay, gone with the wind. Let's let's, let's see, see what happens. Let's see if this is the gloves have been on this whole time. Let's <laughs> see what happens now. You have my attention. That's definitely going to be a, an interesting second part. Yeah, it's gonna be a tough one to put on the list because there's things that are really great about it, and there's things that are really terrible about it. Most of the great things are technical. Yes. Like I said, how much are you willing to forgive? I don't know. We'll have to see after the the second part. We'll have to see what that second part has in store for us. A conversation we'll have to have next time. Yep. When we finally slay this dragon and can move on to the 40s. Why couldn't The Wizard of Oz win Best Picture in 1939? God, that would have been amazing. Yes! It would have... A little disappointing for this podcast though because it would have been the number one and stayed there for the next (laughs) what how many episodes 80 episodes oh what's wrong with that you want a little you know drama i know i mean i've had wings on top of my list since the beginning so but here we are gone with the wind instead yeah this is what the academy chose yeah this is the timeline we have to deal with and especially Based on what we've just seen so far, why do you think that it won Best Picture? Uh, enormous crowd scenes, the prestige of the whole thing. Like I said, it's it's so arrogant and assured of its own grandeur. Mm. Like the whole thing is being treated with the intermission and the the music and the it being in color. Yeah, like they're putting. Everyone is putting all their effort into this thing. Right. So, of course it, it won because it, 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 so much work went into it. Yeah. It is, it is a momentous piece of art. Whether or not it's a good piece of art is debatable, but it is certainly grand and enormous in scope. Yeah. And next time, we'll have to hash out where it's going to go on the list. <laughs> I I don't have a lot of hope for it to go high on my list, but I'm I'm happy to be uh, to be surprised, you know. I'm happy to be uh, proven wrong by the second half. We'll see. Yep. Until next time. Until next time. Bye everybody. Thanks for listening.
Okay, that's it, that's it, that's it.